0: Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. This is the show where we focus on bootstrapping and mostly bootstrapping SaaS companies. Today, I sit down with my Tiny Seed co-founder, Anar Volset, and we talk through five insights SaaS founders should know about AI, about OpenAI, ChatGPT, LLMs, all the things you're probably kind of tired of hearing about. But here's the different tact that we took that I'm not hearing other podcasts and other pundits make on this topic. I tried to put a mental framework around AI that SaaS founders would understand. It's how I would be thinking about this if I were a startup founder. And frankly, it's how I'm advising my almost 150 investments to be thinking about this. So I kick it off by going through four categories of AI so we had some taxonomy to think about. And I talk about generative, categorization, summarization, and predictive. And then we walk through five things that I think you as a founder should be thinking about. If you're putting your head in the sand and thinking AI is not going to change everything, that's a problem because it's going to change quite a few things. But before we dive into that, tickets for MicroConf Europe this October are available for sale. MicroConf.com slash Europe. MicroConf Europe is in Lisbon, October 1st through the 3rd. Speakers include Michelle Hansen of GeoCodio, Sherry Walling of Zen Founder, myself, Stephen and Craven of Stritus, and several others yet to be announced. It's going to be an amazing event. Tickets are already flying off the shelves, as they say. Microconf.com/europe if you're interested. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Interval Set on five insights SaaS founders should know about AI. Thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Glad to have me.
0: It is awesome. We're gonna be digging into AI today. Obviously, talking about things that SaaS founders, whether bootstrapped or not, really should be thinking about. I wanna kick it off by Maybe giving folks an idea of of how you've been digging into AI, how you're thinking about it, and how much you've been screwing around with it. In essence, you've also and you've been doing internal presentations to tiny C companies. Like of all the people I know, you're one of the people who has given it the most thought, so to speak.
1: Well, wow, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of like started looking at it. I guess in August or September last year, and it wasn't really on my on my radar, all that much. I have to be perfectly honest. Like you know, we've invested in a couple of AI companies or, or companies that used AI. It was a key part of it back in, I guess, twenty one. And I nearly did my PhD on on AI. Which, actually, looking back at it, I'm kind of glad that I didn't because it was <laughs> looking back, it was a bit of terrible time to have done your PhD on AI. But it sort of started coming definitely to the to the forefront in the fall, and particularly with ChatGPT, it became very evident to me that this was like probably one of the bigger shifts in terms of a technical capability that would impact startups i think at at the very least the biggest comparative change that i've seen was probably when the iphone was launched and i think i think it's definitely a bigger shift than that and potentially as big as like the internet becoming a sort of a commercial commercially viable thing to do so I, so i started really digging into it i thought you know <laughs> AI is an interesting thing. Like you know, people have weird reactions to it. And and you know, there's there are sort of the doomsters out there who are like, we should just, you know, call in airstrikes whenever the loss function falls too much, you know. But equally, I, I think a little bit more of the of the sort of like considered concern meant like, well, you know, if you can just ask the AI to do everything, why do you even need SaaS companies anymore? Like, you know, why do you need, need all this stuff? So I started digging into it quite deeply, probably sort of November, December time frame. And it became evident to me that, like this was this was something that that we needed to both for the portfolio for Tiny Seed, but also for you know the work that that I do with Discretion Capital, we needed needed to lean out, lean into it. And sort of probably my most of my experimentation to date, and sort of the systems that we've been building, has been augmenting our systems for Discretion Capital in terms of using AI to sort of understand the SaaS, the, specifically the B two B SaaS market uh, worldwide. And and that has allowed us to. To basically have a step change, we're basically gone from like, you know, tracking the, the number of SaaS companies that we're tracking and, and like what they're doing and all this stuff is probably gone from like 10% of the market to nearly 100%. So it's like an order of magnitude change. And like it's been key to me to, to, to try to understand, you know, obviously that's a huge benefit to us, but also like I wanted to understand how it would impact our portfolio at TinySea because like we're, we're invested in so many companies, you know, I, I felt like there's probably at least a third, if not more, which there could be a, a severe competitive impact uh, on the stuff. So so I started digging into it. I haven't, like more, most of my focus has not been so much on the sort of visual models, like the stable diffusions and dollies and stuff, but mostly on the sort of large language models like ChatGPT or flan T5 coming out of Google and just trying to understand like, okay, how does this impact? How can we do this? There's, a, there's an odd dynamic in the AI world, I feel like, because it's like, on one hand, you have people who think it'll be like, just snap your fingers and it'll take over the world. And the other hand, you have people who are like, oh, this is just autocomplete. It's bullshit. Like, why even bother with it? This is like, you know, the, st- the most standard thing I hear is like, oh, this is Web 3.0 once again. It's like NFT craze. And I'm like, brother, it's not NFT craze. Like, whatever it is, it's not that. So, so yeah, that's been my my angle. Like I said, my my academic background is very much on sort of the system supplied side. And so trying to understand, you know, reading a lot of papers and trying to understand, like, what can it do? What can it not do? What are the best practices? And, and like you say, also trying to, to get the, the tiny seed portfolio companies up to speed as fast as possible in terms of understanding what they, what they can expect.
0: Right. And there's a certain amount of just learning what it can do and not do, as you're saying. And then in three months, six months, 12 months, trying to get ahead head around what might it be able to do at that point, then taking that and viewing it through the lens of SaaS companies whether funded or not, right? I mean, that's what we're trying to do internally. For folks who don't know, you mentioned Discretion Capital. That is the sell-side M&A firm where you help SaaS companies between one and 20 million ARR exit, right? You run processes. So you know a bunch of SaaS companies, tens of thousands, literally, private equity companies, all this stuff that, that you do with that. So they know why, you know, both tiny seed and Discretion Capital, and frankly, MicroConf and, and this podcast has an interest in this topic. It's because I keep saying, ignore AI at your peril. I've heard the same thing about, is this the next Web3? Is this the next whatever other technology had a big hype cycle and then flamed out? Yes, there's a big hype cycle. But I think this is much more like no code, where no code had a hype cycle and people were like, uh, I don't know, it doesn't really, it's, just it's always just code. You know, you have these witty retorts, but like no code is changing things at a, at a grassroots level. It's changing things for a lot of people. AI is going to do that times a hundred I think you and I are both in agreement on that.
1: 100%. I mean, to, to give you an idea, like, you know, it, it's rare, like the whole NFT thing, like that. Didn't, like my normie friends in Europe, that's usually like my my standard measure of like, you know, how do people interact with technology? And my normie friends in Europe, like they never even heard of NFTs. Like it was just, it was like a what? Like who cares about this rent? Ethereum, like who gives a sh? you know? No code, but eh, I don't care. But like ChatGPT, it was like, Immediately I was talking talking to my brother once and he's like, oh yeah, crap. Like normally it would take us like three, four weeks to write this report that we charge a bunch of money for. And actually, yeah, it can be done in two days now. You know, like real people are seeing real impact. And I and I think if if you have technical founders who are like sticking their head in the sand about the capability that's that's just become available, I think that's a massive, massive mistake. A huge mistake.
0: Yeah, my brother runs a construction firm in the Bay Area. And similarly, he and I talked about it for 20 minutes and I started showing him, I was like, it's not like construction is the most high-tech industry, but he was telling me about briefs he has to write or things he has to summarize or things he has to consume. Or, you know what I mean? It's just the moment we got into text, I was like, oh, well, let's just, here, give me that in a PDF so I can copy-paste it right into chat GPT and just ask it some questions, you know? Yeah. And it was it 100% right? No. But will it be 100% right in the next three, six, 12, you know, whatever, it's it's going to get there, right? So
1: It's going to get there. And like I think a lot of the time, like technical founders, they underestimate how much of the world economy consists of people who take bits of text and produce bits of text and give it to other people. And those people produce other bits of text, depending on the inputs of that bits of text. That's a lot, a lot of the economy in the world.
0: Yeah. It's crazy. So A when you said your normie friends, so I use the term muggles. Oh my muggle friends, you know that it's from muggles? Harry Potter. Right. Yeah, went in the wizarding school, right? Oh. The muggles are like the normies who don't have magic. Anyways, I wanna kick it off. I, I put together an outline of my thoughts. The reason I wanted to have you on is I could totally have done a solo episode around this, right? But I want someone who knows more about it than I am to to say, I disagree. Oh, I do agree. Oh, I agree, plus plus.
1: You to disagree, Rob, always. Oh, I
0: know. That's to derail the (laughs) podcast is your goal. All right, so I have been trying to get my head around kind of the categories of AI that are, this is not capture everything in the world, but as I've seen uses of ChatGPT and Dolly. And uh, the OpenAI API, I realized, I think that in my head, there are four categories, is, is the only word I can come up with. But the first is generative. This is where you type in something and it spits something out. So that's like create an outline for a YouTube video titled, How to Invest in Bootstrap Startups. And then it just does an outline, right? It creates it based on its predictive stuff. Or you can type into Dolly, you can type in, create a picture of Anna Volset with a San Francisco Giants hat on. Ooh, no, who's your, with the white socks? Who would be the, (laughs) that would be great. The Dodgers, oh yeah, no. Ooh, all right, note to self, putting it on my Trello board. Create a picture of Anna Volset with a Dodgers hat on, right? And waving a big foam finger that says, I love Tommy Lasorda. Am I in the wrong decade? Is that is that not still? I don't even know who
1: that is. So that
0: sounds good to me. <laughs> Ooh, it's a deep cut. For people uh, who watched baseball in the 80s, they totally know what I'm talking about. But, anyways, that's like, so that's what I'm calling generative AIs, generating things. Second one is categorization. Like, if I feed it 1,000 URLs, can it tell me which of these is an e commerce website versus an agency versus a SaaS app? And then the third I have is summarization, which is a little bit, it, you could call this generative, but I'm breaking it out because I'm having ChatGPT and other tools summarize a YouTube video and try to turn it into a tweet thread, for example. So there's a summary and there's a bit of generation. And then the fourth one I have is predictive. And this is one where internally we've, I I think we've talked or brainstormed. It's like, well, could you input all the inputs of all the successful masterminds that we've matched in microconf? And then when the new batch comes in, you, know, you put those inputs in and have it try to predict what we should match because that matching process is extremely manual right now. And I don't know that we have enough data and we've matched a thousand founders. If we had a million, I would say we have enough data, but I just don't know there's enough that it could do it. So those are kind of the four things, generative, categorization, summarization, and predictive. I've gone to Google and tried to type in like, what are the types of AIs? What are the categories of AI to try to get someone much smarter than me has thought about it in this way but i don't seem to be able to find it do you have thoughts do you feel like i'm on base there any other types that i'm missing
1: no i i think that's reasonably fair i probably like think of it slightly differently like you know i think in general there is this notion i mean in general like it's everything is generative like fundamentally a lot of the text models are just like they're extremely flexible apis basically it's just text in text out so you know that's true i mean i think like as a broad class, as the way I think about it, there are sort of like classification, which is sort of similar to, to predictions, where it's like, here's something, which bucket does this fall into? I, it could be anything. It could be like, is this URL a SaaS app, like we do for discretion capital? Or it's like, like you say, like, Given this background, does this person fall into this or that mastermind fit? I think that's true. And I I think like summarization is probably also one of the key ways to basically get value very quickly. And, And like one of the key things there is it's remarkable to me, like you were saying, like when you were talking to your brother, it's like it's remarkable to me how often you can just sort of put dirty data in there and it'll just sort of clean it up and figure it out. You know, like, you could take raw HTML, messed up JavaScript from a website, dump it in there and say, hey, give me the, what does this business do? Like, give me the summarize of what this page is. Even though, like, if you were to do that with pre-LLMs, then that would be kind of a pain in the ass to do. And I think, I think for me, that's one of the key mind shifts that this technology does. It's like, basically, programming in general is extremely precise, right? Math is very precise. Programming is very precise. I mean, it's like, if you want to interact with text, you, you better clean up your text. Like it, it better be in a specific format. You know, ideally it's in a table of some kind. You normalize the data, you deal with it. And like it's it's much easier as a programmer to deal with like exact numbers and things than it is to deal with different various corpus of text. And I think that's probably one of the main things to sort of keep in mind when you're thinking about use cases, is that it's like it, it effectively gives you sort of new sort of fuzzy tools. So it sort of like gives you like a, a way to like grasp at in a sort of a fuzzy, imprecise way, grab text and text formats and get value from that in a way that is almost impossible to do in a generic way before. Because before you had to handle like every side case and every possible, you know, whatever. Versus with these tools, you can sort of like just roughly grab some text and kind of indicate the sort of thing that you want to be able to do. And it'll sort of refine it and like you say, summarize it and like put it into a a more valuable format where you can interact with it. And in fact, like, you know, one of the most precise formats and one of the most interesting things is this things around embedding. So I think that's sort of the next step that people, uh, you know, get to. They start playing with it and they do the thing and then they sort of like go, okay, how do I represent like many of this of this thing? And like being able to take. You know, extremely diverse textual, maybe dirty text sources and turn it into a very concise textual representation of something that contained information, or even better, like an embedding that you can embed in a, in a, in a database and do things like vector search on. I, I think that's one of the key things to really understand when you're trying to think about the use cases and how it applies to your SaaS.
0: Yeah, and that's why it's helpful for me to have these categories of what it can do, even if they're, they're all generative, you're right. They're all just generated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as I break right, it down, down. Yep, but <laughs> I'm thinking as a founder, let's say I ran an uh, email service provider today or I ran a CRM, I would want to say, when do I ask my users to generate text or to generate images? Well, obviously when they're writing an email, when they, well, what are they getting that email from? Are they just trying to summarize something else? So should I build a summarization engine into my ESP? right, Or in my CRM, when I type in the URL of my contact, the sales lead, Shouldn't AI maybe try to categorize that? Because that's my second category, right? Categorize it and say, hey, is Ding, is this an e-commerce company? You know? Yeah. Or or even pull in a summary or write a summary of like this company does the XYZ in three sentences such that the sales rep doesn't have to do that. So having those four categories, and again, I'm not saying, you know, if we listen to this in a year, I bet we'll be like, oh, yeah, those categories were off. But I think they're close. And I think that's it's a model of if, if I was running a SaaS app today, I would apply each of those four, generative, categorization, summarization, and predictive, to say where in the app would my users benefit from it doing one of those, or where do I ask them to do it today that AI can at least give them a start?
1: I'm, and I agree with that. And I think... It sort of relates to some of the other ways that I think about it. And is, and like what I tell tiny C founders, too, is like, it's important given this new capability to not just, you know, it's completely the wrong approach to think that this is just NFTs and stick your head in the sand. Like that is fundamentally wrong. Like <laughs> I'll take an argument with anybody who thinks that. But even if you think it's like this is something that that is great and you want to utilize, I think it's such a big change in capability that it's always behooves you to sort of take a step back and look at the businesses that you have and the customers that you have and the use cases and the, the, the problems that you're solving for your customers and take like a big sort of step back and sort of get up to the sort of 30,000 feet level and think about what are the sort of jobs to be done in the, that generically for my customers and like what is now possible given that this capability exists that didn't exist like a year or two ago. Like, what can I do differently? I think some people will end up not getting the most of this or sort of be left by the wayside because they're a little bit too close to their existing solution. Like, they're like, oh, I'll just add a chat bot to my thing. Or like, we can do this. And it becomes very hard to to build any kind of defensive mode around that because it's like, anyone can add a chat. Like, chat might pe- like, there's like, there's be like, there's got to be like, at one point I was looking at product hunt and it was like, Every single thing, except like two things on that day's product hunt, was chat to my PDF docs. Like, It's (laughs) it's like 12 different ones. It's like, yeah, okay. Well, this is the tutorial case for almost all large language models. Like, you know, come on. Like, this can't be, this is not a product. This is like an auxiliary thing. And it's important that you take a step back and say, okay, what problems can I now, how can I, maybe I can solve the same problems or bigger problems for my customers than what I was able to do before.
0: Yeah, that's our first point, really. I have five points in an outline today. We may do more, depending on other thoughts you have. But really, the first one is to take those four categories that we've just talked about and ask yourself where each of them could be applied to your SaaS, to help your customers, to just make it better, right? Is to kind of mental model. And as you said, the obvious ideas of putting a chat bot is not going to be enough. My second thought, or the second point that I've realized ties right into what you just said with the chat PDF and how eight out of 10, you know, on product hunt were that unless you build something novel that is non-obvious and relatively difficult to build, AI is not a differentiator. If all you're doing is engineering a prompt and you can build it in a weekend, even though it can do something totally f***ing cool, anyone else can do that next weekend, right? That's a big mistake. Everyone can use it. The obvious idea is, you know, again, summarizing X, Y, Z, you're building a chat for your PDF. There are going to be hundreds of those. So you have to go further and think about moats are still moats, and five hours of code is not a moat.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that's true. I think, like, basically, the key thing to think about in terms of how I think about founders and their SaaS businesses. Is like you say, I think it's important not just to think, hey, just not, don't just stick your head in that. Like, if, if it's, if it's two, two hours worth of work and it adds a really cool capability to your app, you should definitely do that. Like, you know, like, it's a mistake not to, but you can't think that that's like a competitive advantage, like an additional mode than what you currently have. What you really wanna be doing, I think, is to say, okay, I have my mode. How can I further add to it with AI? And I think like, if you don't do that, if you don't, like, if there's some obvious stuff that people eventually will come around to realizing, oh, this, we should add this capability that the LLM gives us to, to the problem domain that you're working in. If you don't do that, then someone else will. And like someone may come out of the sort of left field. And basically, because you sort of like refuse to, to sort of go with the times and sort of add this capability to your product, then that might be a competitive advantage for someone else because they choose to do it and we refuse to do so. There's going to be some failure modes there where people are like sticking their head in the sand about this and being like, oh, it doesn't matter, like whatever. I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, but some people are going to get outcompeted competed by this low-hanging fruit. But the flip side is, like you say, the low-hanging fruit isn't in itself a mode.
0: It's more an accelerant. It becomes, I think of it, I mean, there's a ton of examples we could use, but like, remember when Rails came out for, for Ruby? Yeah. And somebody, I don't, I don't remember if it was DHH or someone on on the team there built Twitter like a, a small version of Twitter, MVP version, in like 20 minutes on a video, and people were like, "Oh my gosh, now I can build Twitter in 20 minutes." And it's like, "Yeah, that's cool. That's no longer a differentiator." Like the code to build that. And so if you were still writing Ruby with no Rails and building web apps, suddenly you were way slower than everyone else. And in fact, if you were using, I mean, there's a reason Laravel came out with PHP, Django came out with Python, because those languages became much, much slower than Ruby at building web apps. And so it, again, it's an accelerant. It feels like, oh my gosh, I'm ahead of everyone, but it's like everyone else can use this too.
1: Yeah, I mean It's true. And the way to think about it, like like I I used the iPhone example early on, this is almost like, which I know is strange. It's almost like you can sort of like, if you have a web app, you can flip your, you know, click your fingers and all of a sudden you have a, a native mobile app that works. And like that's what it's like. And if you think about it like that, it's like, well, it's so easy just to add a mobile app. You just you know, click your fingers and you have it. So it's not a moat. But if you don't do that, someone else will. And then that will be a competitive advantage for them.
0: It becomes table stakes in this space, right? Yeah. All right, so that was the second point. The third thing... I'm curious if you agree with me on this, but I wrote this out. The big AI ideas, like trying to build your own models, your own LLMs, and the massive horizontal plays, right? Like building a search engine with AI. It's like these are big. These are going to be billion and billion dollar companies. I think those are already done. They're going to be won by OpenAI, by Google, by Microsoft, by Facebook, IBM, whoever else gets into it. These players are so massive and so well funded that if you're a mostly bootstrap company like the SaaS we see, it's just too big. What do you think about that?
1: I agree with that. I mean, like, so, for example, like one of the things that I have running in my just in my local MacBook is I've taken Google takeouts, so exported all my email from all my email accounts and basically created a chatbot that allows me to talk to about my email. So I can ask, like, OK, when did I meet so and so or like, who are the people that I talked to after I went to this conference? That sort of thing. You know, it's very, very cool. But do I think it's a standalone business? Do you think it's a good business for a bootstrapper to start? No, because it's such an obvious thing for like the big email providers just to add out of the box. Like I'm almost a little shocked that Google hasn't already added a way for you to interact with Gmail that is like that. And so that's effectively like I think the big players will take the low hanging fruits and and sort of accelerate on the on their way and sort of add that compare add to the existing competitive mode so I wouldn't want to start like a, a an AI email startup type client that just that doesn't make any sense at least not for like a bootstrap type business now if you If you're at neumann and you raised like a gazillion dollars sure go for it but most people aren't like that they don't they don't necessarily do that so so yeah i 100 percent agree with that i still think the same the same is sort of true for search now some of these big hairy ideas that are like once you realize understand what it does and understanding technology then it's sort of an obvious idea if it's an obvious idea in a huge competitive market with large incumbents you know what those guys are going to take that. That's, they're going to own that piece. And, and so like building your startups around that and thinking like, oh, I'm smarter, I'm n- more nimble, I'm doing whatever. I'm like, you know what? Like connecting Gmail's data with OpenAI's APIs and calling that your startup, that's not competitive mode. That's not going to work for you. You have to go after like, what is your existing mode? What is something new? Like something completely new that is not, you know, <laughs> it doesn't require people to change, you know, that sort of behavior in order to be su- for you to be successful.
0: Or like we talked about above, you have existing moats probably within your company today. And using AI to make your product better is a way to extend, extend those and accelerate. Point four that I'd like to communicate is in addition to thinking about how AI can be integrated into your product as features, right? Which was point one, I think most SaaS founders and frankly most entrepreneurs should probably be using AI internal to their company. Whether you're doing content marketing or you're trying to repurpose a YouTube video to Twitter or a YouTube video to a blog post, whether you say, draft a cold email based on my homepage to this type of buyer and have it give you a 101. Oh no, that's not funny enough, right? I mean, you can go back and forth with it. To help outline YouTube videos, I will admit some of the YouTube videos that I'm putting out, I go to ChatGPT and say, outline a video, 12 best business books to read this year, blah, blah, blah. And then, But then I'll say, nope, not good enough, regenerate, regenerate. It's not even 50% for me. It's probably 25% I use, or a third of what it gives me. But it helps get me outside of my own box, right? So we're using it for content generation. And I feel like small software companies especially really took advantage of like when virtual assistants were $5 an hour in 2008. Like, that was a game changer for my little company at the time. And I think that if you're not using AI in your own internal workflows, again, this is not building it as a feature in your app, but helping it make you faster... I think it's something that you should be thinking about what do you think
1: yeah I 100% agree with that I mean I think the obvious I mean the obvious case where this applies immediately is code like I don't write code anymore without AI helping me out and I probably do only about 20 or 30% of the typing like it just it just moves faster like I don't bother like if I have a new Python library that I need to figure out how to use I don't bother trying to ask Stack Overflow anymore. I just am like, I don't read the docs. My standard thing is like, hey, I want to use this library in Python. Can you write write me up some code to do it? Like, like for example, like I wanted some visualization code. I've never been good at a visualization code. And I was like, okay, because they're all kind of complex, you know, like they're a pain in the ass to deal with visualization stuff. So I was just like, I was asking ChatGPT, hey, can you visualize these, you know, 2000 embeddings for me or these, you know, whatever it was. And it just did it. It was like, yeah, just cut and paste this stuff in here. Make sure you pip install this library, and boom, it was doing the visualization, the three dimensional visualization that I wanted to do, without me having to really ever look outside ChatGPT to understand how the library works. And I think, I think that applies. I also think it's like if you're in a profession or part of your thing is where you're generating, you know, text, for example, like reports and things like that internally. Like you're at a massive disadvantage if you're not using that. Like anything that you're outsourcing to your VA, or you have like some medium-level employee write text for, like that stuff, you should probably be looking at. Can how how can I augment this capability with with like an LLM?
0: I have a caveat to this one, and I'm curious curious to bat it around with you just a little bit. It kind of relates to this one plus the first point about building features into SaaS, but I feel like not every SaaS app itself needs or can use AI inside of it as a feature. But I do think every SaaS company or every SaaS founder could be using it internally. Pretty much and everyone internally has something they'll, you know, they can use Chat GPT or, or AI for. But I was trying to think of examples. And I mean, there isn't a great use case for it. Like what about Ruben's company Signwell, right? It's electronic signature. How could AI be integrated in that? Because I can't think of a great example off the top of my head.
1: Sure. I can. <laughs> Okay. Hi, Ruben. Um, <laughs> basically, you have a company. It signs a bunch, a bunch of documents, a bunch of contracts. How does the company keep track of its obligations that it's signed? How does it know that?
0: You mean what's in the documents? Like summer, like knowing what it's... Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So it becomes a knowledge all, base.
1: All the contracts that are given, I mean, contract management. Like you, you, Ruben can turn into a contract management. You can, you can add a contract management capability to, to sign well. It could be like, yeah, part of the thing, you sign this contract... And uh, like it says, when you're going to get paid, uh, summarizes you know, your obligations to the client. Did you meet this? Yes or no? It understands every commitment you've made and can summarize it for you. So, yeah, no, that's I, a good, I, I like that. This is why. That's a good example. There might, there might be, but that particular case, I like definitely. I can. Yeah. See how about, case. let's do
0: one more and then we'll move on. I, I think in the world there are, there is a percentage that won't use them, but it's probably pretty small. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Good. But uh, what about like SavvyCal, right? Derek Reimer, startup scheduling link, competes with Calendly. Like,
1: Absolutely. I want to be able to talk about my SavvyCal links. Like, okay, hey, summarize, what did I do with my, you know, how many times have I talked to this person before? When was the last time I talked to these people? Like it's it's about it's like unstructured, semi-structured data about what I did with my days that can be generated in text. Absolutely. You can use that you know, built in. And actually, like it ties into it ties into one of the things I haven't done. Like I mentioned, my email is a good example of, of like how I'm using it to talk about basically talk to my inbox. One of the things that I'm not doing, that's kind of the low hanging fruit there, too, is like I want to be able to integrate it in, into my calendar and just say, so I email this person that and that date. And also, by the way. I chatted to them, you know, we, I had a I had a Zoom call with them on such and such a day. That should be part of the information that sort of summarizes into, into what I'm doing. So yeah, I think both both of those do have pretty, pretty large, actually, large language model in this case.
0: Cool. So let's let's move on from there to the fifth point. And this is one I'm sure you've thought about. So I'm curious. I, th- I think we both agree on it. But the question here that I would ask myself as a founder is: is my business model a ticking time bomb? Because some businesses are you know if you're a big team of analysts presenting data and you're doing a bunch of manual work and you're summarizing things like that it becomes like you said what was it the 3 week report becomes a 2 day thing well once anyone can do that that's a problem right so how should founders what should they be thinking about and and how can you escape that right how can you not let your business basically be completely deprecated by ai in in those cases it's not everybody but there is a subset of of saas out there
1: there are and i think like The use cases where you have, again, like maybe before a part of your moat was, oh, this is really dirty data. It's hard to deal with. It's imprecise. Like it requires verification. So you end up like, you know, outsourcing to a a call center in the Philippines or or not a call center, but like outsourcing, you know, overseas. And you're paying people to do textual analysis or updating reports manually because it's, it's like super hard to do. With, with the existing technology, I think that particular model, I think if if that was my moat, if that's what I did, I would be worried. I don't necessarily think it's like, here's the thing, it sort of relates to what LLMs are bad at. Like you can't have it, like people say, like, oh, you know, I can't do, you know, math. They can't do two times to the power eight times whatever, six, whatever, right? That does not, like, yeah, but, but that's what it does. Like it, that's just mm-hmm. a calculator. It doesn't matter. That's what it's good at. What it's also another thing it's not good at is like queries like all the give me all the whatever it is in the world. Like it doesn't it doesn't do well at that just because like that's not what it's good at. That's not like being able to iterate every row in a database is not something that it's that it's good at. And so I think the moat that exists from building out and managing and quality assurance on a team of people in the Philippines say, I think that's going to go away. But that doesn't mean I think that the entirety of those businesses are like just three lines of code in chat GPT anymore. It just becomes a different, it just becomes a different moat. And if you lean then too heavily on that existing moat, then yeah, I think you'll, I think you'll be out-competed. But I think a lot, like sort of what I'm saying is like, for those kind of businesses, it makes sense to sit down and say, okay, let's just admit that this particular thing is no longer a moat. What can we do, given the capabilities that we already have and the customer relationships and like the understanding on how we get that data? Like, what can we build like it, it it's almost like yeah you kind of like if you've been sort of cruising along on that moat by yourself you're going to be in trouble
0: right and i'm here less to be what do you call it doom and gloom the world is not over i mean we are in as entrepreneurs like we are in the best spot possible one of the best spots possible to take advantage of this this is exactly i keep likening it back to having a VA for $5 an hour because in 2007 and 8 I was running these very small businesses, I didn't have huge budgets and I was either writing all the code myself or I w- and I was doing all the support myself because the only people I knew lived where I did in LA and I paid developers $75 an hour and I paid admins $30 an hour and I had no profit margin. And then when I read the 4 hour work week I was like, "What?" I can do that. And so I did. And it made my you know $3,000 a month .NET invoice suddenly be a 90% profit margin business. And that changed the game for me. And that's when I realized, oh, I can do this. So I think AI is that plus plus. Right? I think oh, yeah. it's, it's even more different. And I was in a position and at the time people were like, oh no, offshoring, outsourcing, all Americans are going to have no jobs. And I was like, A, that's not true. <laughs> and B, a lot of us, like knowledge workers and developers and, and entrepreneurs are at a great place to take advantage of it. So that's like my mental model of this.
1: I agree. I mean, I, I think like it's an amazing time to be alive. <laughs> and it's also like an amazing time to be the kind of bootstrap or nearly bootstrap a software entrepreneur. Because like, even just being aware that this sort of exists and like being able to write code that can call an API, that can do some stuff, that's an amazing, you're, you're like heads and shoulders above, you know, your average Joe. and I, And I think like, doom and glooming on it is completely pointless. Like It's going to change our lives, I think, you know, mostly for the better. And like having an optimistic view of where this is going to go and have it be like, this is amazing, what cool things can I do now, I think is the right attitude as opposed to the sort of doomer, like, oh, all sasses are going to go away, everything's going to hell, and then, by the way, the AI also take over and, and murder us all.
0: Right. And and look, is there a spot to say, you know, will people lose jobs and, you know, will it have social impact, especially on just the lower end of data processing, data entry, whatever? Yeah, there is. This is not the podcast where we talk about that kind of stuff, but it certainly could have an impact, right? So as a listener, hopefully that was helpful to hear Anar and my thoughts on this. Obviously, we have, I would say, a relatively unique perspective being invested in a lot of companies and just being knee deep in in SaaS, you know, day in and day out. If folks want to keep up with you, you are Anar Volset on Twitter, and we mentioned Discretion Capital at discretioncapital.com, as well as Tiny Seed, of course, that's what we work on together. Indeed. Thanks again for joining me, man. Thank you. Thanks again to Anar for joining me this week. And thanks to you for joining me every week. I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 663.